This morning we're going to be looking at a uh, psalm that is pretty disturbing at first, but it's got a lot to teach us. We're going to be looking at Psalm 59, so go ahead and turn there. This is one of what's called the imprecatory psalms. These are psalms where David asked God to wipe out his enemies, to just take them out, show them no mercy. And that kind of uh, language is a little bit uncomfortable for us. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? You know, is this, is this an example of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Uh, a lot of people think, you know, the Old Testament is harsh and cold and unloving, and the God of the Old Testament is stern and unyielding and unforgiving, while the New Testament is full of forgiveness and, and, and acceptance and tolerance, and the God of the New Testament is loving and generous and kind. See, I don't think when we look closely at Scripture that discrepancy holds up. It's the same God. His character is the same. And what He wants for us in how we respond to people and to to situations hasn't changed at all. So let's go ahead and look at this psalm, see how it works out. Start with the title. It says, For the Director of Music. Now this psalm was intended to be put to song. I have never... (laughs) In any of the churches I've been to, heard this one sung. <laughs> I don't know how the tune would go. God, get them, please. You know, it, this is not a sweet little ditty. This is a raw, rough song of intense emotion. We're told that it was to be put to the tune of Do Not Destroy. Now, that tune must have been a popular song back then because there are several psalms that are put to that tune. Throughout uh, history... God's people have taken the music of their day and put truth to it, put God's Word to it so that people could hear it and identify with it and understand it. Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther took a common bar song, a song that was known through all the taverns in Germany, and he put new words to it. And that's where we get our hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that probably scandalized the people of his day. Just like uh, we may get a little bit unsettled by some Christian rap groups. But it's their attempt to bring God's Word to their generation in a language that could be understood. And that's exactly what David is doing. He's taking God's Word and putting it in the medium of the music of his day. Music that will stick in people's minds and, and will touch their emotions. I tried to... Find out what this tune was, Do Not Destroy, but no one seems to know. My best guess is it's an ancient rendition of Louie Louie. (laughs) But that can't be confirmed. Anyway, we're we're told that this song was written uh, by David when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Now, this is a story we have back in, in uh, 1 Samuel 19. Ron mentioned this last week when he was speaking on uh, Psalm 11. If you remember what happened then was uh, David had become an attendant in Saul's court. He used to sing to Saul when Saul was depressed. David had become one of Saul's most loyal supporters. And so when the time came that uh, Saul needed to send somebody out to lead the armies, he sent David because he trusted David. David was successful because God was with him. And the people around, they noticed that. And they came up with this little cheer that say, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. 
But Saul did not like that little cheer. It really bothered him. It really rankled him. And so he began to hate David. One day while David was singing to him, Saul was sitting there stewing, and he picks up a spear and he throws it at David. Now he missed. But, uh, sometime later he tries again, and David catches on that Saul wants him dead. And so David begins to avoid coming to Saul's court. David was still in charge of the armies. God was still with him. He was still being successful. And Saul's hatred kept growing. So Saul began to hatch a variety of plots to try to kill David. And the one we have in 1 Samuel 19 is Saul sends a bunch of lowlifes, uh, uh, men with no honor who will do anything for a price. And they sneak up on David's house in order to kill him in his sleep. You see, Saul had sunk to the level of a cowardly terrorist. That's where his hatred had led him. But David is tipped off, you know, maybe by some real soldiers in the army who couldn't stomach this kind of cowardice. Or maybe he just saw these guys uh, lurking around. But anyway, he knows what's going on. And so he writes this psalm in response. Now let me just read through uh, this psalm little by little, uh, making comments. David is upset. He's very angry. He's very hurt. And so he calls out to God. He says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, rouse yourself. Punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. So David uh, is crying out to God. He's uh, asking God to protect him, to save him, to deliver him. And what makes all of this so hard for David is that he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything to deserve being treated like this. He loves Saul. He was loyal to Saul. He did everything he could do to make Saul successful as a king and as a leader, as God's anointed. And still, these bloodthirsty goons are out there trying to kill him. It is so unfair and unjust. You know, it's one thing to have people mad at us because we've done something wrong, because we've hurt them, or because we've been mean to them. But it's so hard to take when we haven't done anything. When we've actually been trying to love them. And they hate us for it. And they're angry. It just hurts so much. It's wrong. And we can't shrug it off like it doesn't matter. Because it matters a lot. It matters very much. You see, God has built in us a sense of justice. And our anger when we see injustice, is really a reflection of his character. It angers him. It is not insignificant. It is not something we can say, oh, it just doesn't matter. Again, it matters very much. And so David cries out to God there in verse 5. He says, rouse yourself, God. Wake up, God. Pay attention. Do something, God. See, he calls God Elohim, uh, Elohim Sabaoth. The God Almighty, the God of Israel, he knows God is big enough. He knows God is powerful enough. He knows God is great enough to handle this situation. But it just feels like God isn't paying any attention. 
See, one of the great lies of the enemy is that God's not paying attention. He's distracted. He's got more important things to deal with. Or maybe he just doesn't care. When we're in the midst of a crisis, when everything seems so out of control, we're just tempted to think he's not paying attention. That's what David is feeling. That's why he calls up to God. You know, God, wake up. If God's paying attention, how could he let this happen? Wake up, God, do something. Help me. I'm not sure why in verse 5 he brings all the nations into this whole thing. He says, punish all the nations. I don't think he's just lashing out. Maybe he is uh, just coming to grips with the fact that he's got no place to run. Here Saul, his king, is trying to kill him. And David has been defeating all the rest of the nations in battle. He is their enemy. Uh, He is probably on their top of their most wanted list because he has been defeating them. And he can't run to them. They won't give him any protection. In fact, possibly, maybe even probably, these other nations were trying to encourage Saul's hatred of David, trying to, to incite him to kill David. It was very common in those days for other governments to recruit some high official in the Israelite court to just plant a word in the king's ear. We see this real clearly in Nehemiah. All they do is they, they plant a little suspicion. They, they talk about things in a way that really leads that king to make a wrong move that, they, that, that can be exploited. You see, in the very next verse, or the very next line of that verse 5, David says, God, go after those wicked traitors. It really burns David that people would do this kind of thing. Then in verse 6, we have the chorus, the refrain. 1 through 5 is the first verse. 6 through the first part of 9 is the first chorus. Then you have the rest of 9 through 13 is the second verse of this song. And then 14 through 17, the chorus is repeated. Let me read this, just so you, a little of this, so you can see how it works. Verse 6 says, uh, They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. They spew out swords from their lips. And they say, Who can hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. O my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. And over on verse 14, the same chorus is repeated again. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. And he goes on to use similar language all the way through verse 17. You know, maybe after looking at that chorus, maybe the tune that this should have been sung to was, You ain't nothing but a hound dog, crying all the time. But he calls these people a pack of wild dogs. Now realize, back then, a dog was not a nice, cute little house pet. Dogs then were dirty and mongrel street dogs that, that, that uh, snapped and snarled and would terrorize the streets at night and then slink off to hide during the day. You see, that's how he saw these guys. That's what these guys were like. They were, they were vicious and, and, and dangerous and cowardly, looking for a weakness that they can move into, to move in for the kill. And David acknowledges that the most dangerous thing about them was their tongues, was the things they were saying. It says a sword spews out of their mouth. And they say, who can hear us? 
Who's going to set it right? We can say whatever we want. Who's going to contradict us? You see, what they were probably saying was that David had become a traitor. That David had turned against Saul, and that's why Saul was after him. They said David was trying to overthrow the king, was, was trying to start a rebellion. David had become the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God. That just wasn't true. It's a lie. But see, they knew that David couldn't defend himself. Saul was the king. He controls the official press. Who's going to contradict them? Who's going to say it's not true? That's why they say, who will hear us? Well, David knows that God hears them. That God knows exactly what's going on. And God is not intimidated by this plot. He's not wringing his hands saying, oh no, oh no, what will we do? In fact, David says, God laughs at them. He scoffs at their <coughs> their petty little schemes, their, their pretense, the idea that they are getting away with it, that they're going to win in the end. You know, God knows that evil is so incredibly short-sighted and self-defeating that even though he takes evil seriously, it does not frighten him. It does not intimidate him. It is, in fact, bottom line, silly to think that they will get away with it. And so even as much as it hurts us and frustrates us to see people seeming like they're getting away with ignoring God and, and hurting people and saying things against people, quite honestly, it isn't going to work. And we can laugh at the silly idea that it would work. They're like little children with chocolate all over their face, telling their mom they don't know what happened to that last piece of cake. You know, it's so transparent that it's comical. The other day I was standing in the, um, the life chain holding a sign that said, Abortion, or Adoption, the Loving Option. And uh, this elderly woman drove by, and she was probably in her 70s. She looked like a sweet little old lady. And as she looked out the window at us, she stuck her thumb on her nose and went like this all the way down the street. Now, I'm sorry, I know I should have felt pity for her for being deceived by the enemy and so full of hate, but I couldn't help it. I doubled over with laughter. Just the absurdity of it, how silly it looked. And again, God sees the, the schemes of men as silly. God is so unafraid, so unintimidated, so in control that he laughs at the strutting of, of foolish little men who think that they're winning, that they've got it all controlled, that they've got all their bases covered and nobody's going to catch them. And David says, Oh, my strength, I watch for you. You, oh God, are my fortress, my loving God. You know, David has regained perspective by the chorus. He's coming back to the fact, yeah, God's in control. And more importantly, God loves him. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Now listen to the next verse. These aren't very polite words. They don't sound very Christian. But they do express exactly what David was feeling. It says, God will go before me, and he will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, make them wander about and bring them down for the sins of their mouths. 
for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride, for curses and lies they utter. Consume them in thy anger. Consume them till they're no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. David expects to gloat over these guys. Now that's not a very good winner. I teach my kids not to gloat. But you see, David is that absolutely confident and sure that God is going to win in the end. Even though it looks the opposite. God is going to win. David is going to be vindicated. And David believes that down to his bones. Then he asks God, don't kill him too quickly, God. Now, I I don't think this is just um, cruel malice on David's part. Although I at times think a quick death would be too good for some people. I uh, can remember the fury I felt when those two guys grabbed that black uh, Jamaican tourist, poured gasoline on him and lit him on fire just to watch him burn. I mean, that is injustice. That is unbelievable injustice. And I remember thinking and feeling, those guys deserve to be burned at the stake. A quick death would be too good. But that's not where David's coming from here. Where David is coming from is he's saying, God, don't get rid of these guys. I want the people of Israel to see the consequences of sin. I want them to see what it really is like, what it really does to a life. See, he wants God to leave them wandering around in their degradation, in their confusion, in the emptiness and the misery of having chosen sin for a lifestyle. You see, it's so tempting to look around at people who look like it's working and to think, boy, that really does work. And David doesn't want the people of Israel to fall into that confusion. So he says, God, judge them, but leave them here so that people can see what evil does. See the emptiness, the misery, the degradation. People, evil is all PR. It is all promise and no performance. It is all show and no substance. It doesn't fulfill. And it is God's grace that peels off the veneer a little bit so that we can glimpse behind it and see that sin can't work. It's a lie. It's a contradiction. It will never work. But you see, the world uh, presents sin as exciting and adventuresome and fulfilling. Well, it portrays walking with God in love and in truth as boring and diminishing and empty. Again, it's God's grace that from time to time peels back the, the facade so that we can see what's really going on. That in fact... It is sin that is empty and unfulfilling, diminishing, ultimately boring. As in the words of of David, it consumes us, leaving us a hollow shell. And you see, that's exactly what David wants his people, the people of Israel, to see. Otherwise, they may be tempted to follow men like this. And David wants for them freedom from that confusion. Anyway, the psalm... He returns to the chorus here in verse 14. Verse 14 is exactly like verse 6. It says, They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. Then verse 15 changes a little. He says, They wander about for food, and howl if not satisfied. 
It should be, they howl because they are not satisfied. Again, sin cannot satisfy. You know, we believe that, that, that if we had just a little more of it, we didn't get quite enough to do the trick. But the fact is, we've had too much already. That, that, that the satisfaction quotient, the, the, the curve goes down with more, not up with more when you're dealing with sin. Again, our souls howl with the dissatisfaction when we allow ourselves to get caught up and ensnared in sin. But, he says, verse 16, But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. See, God, our David is singing of God's love. After having poured out his frustration and his hurt, his, his sense of injustice before God, he's filled with rejoicing. Now, now, nothing has changed in David's circumstances, but something has profoundly changed in his feelings. You see, he has had the opportunity to, to express himself to God, to pour his heart out to God, and he is renewed in his confidence in God, specifically in his confidence in God's love for him. God loves him. God respects him, even if nobody else does. God understands him and values him. And that is an unassailable source of strength and peace and joy for David. And then he finishes by saying, Oh, my strength, I sing praise to you. You, O oh God, are my fortress, my safe place, my loving God. Now, what do we do with all of this? How do we apply this to our lives? Now, let me go back to some of the questions I asked at the beginning. You know, here David is very upset. He's asking God to wipe out his enemies, to show them no mercy. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Is this an example of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, let me read some words to you from Paul. In the New Testament, just listen to these words from Second Thessalonians. Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are trouble and to us as well. As well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all who believe. See, Paul has that same sense of justice, that same passion to see things put right. But this is the same Paul that in Romans 12 said, do not take revenge, my beloved. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, when your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you will be heaping coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, what Paul is teaching us there in Romans 12 
is not that we shouldn't feel injustice, that we should stop feeling anger and frustration when we see things that are wrong. Now, there's no virtue in lying and pretending and saying it doesn't matter when it matters very, very much. See, spiritual maturity is not a stoic denial of our feelings, a pretending that it doesn't matter. Spiritual maturity is trusting God enough to come to Him and to pour our feelings out to Him honestly, without reservation, not holding anything back, not pritting it up, saying, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Saying, this is what I feel. God, do something here. I am angry. But then trusting Him enough to do something about it. To realize that He is in charge and He can handle it. He will do something about it. You see, it's not that we don't want it taken care of. Sometimes we desperately want justice. It's just that it's not our job to bring it about. That is His job. Our job is to love. See, our job is to come to Him with our feelings, to give them to Him, to really trust Him to be able to do something about it. And that frees us up to feed our enemies, to give them something to drink. You see, again, that's our job. More, more accurately, loving is our privilege and our freedom. Rather than carrying the burden of anger and resentment, we can give that over to God and experience the, the deep satisfaction, the joy of loving people, even our enemies. But you see, we can't really do that unless we come to God with it honestly and lay it before Him. We so rarely give it over to Him. We so rarely trust Him that radically to come and tell Him our feelings and leave it in His hands. We always keep a little piece of our anger and resentment for ourselves. Because deep down, I think we're afraid that if we really let it go, the people that have hurt us will get away with it. And we can't stand that. Well, again, we're not asked to stand that. But we are asked to trust God enough that He will take care of it. He will do what is right. And it's only as we trust Him that much, as we give it over to Him, that we've got the freedom to really honestly love. Not superficially, but honestly from our hearts. You know, what freedom, what healing we would experience as a body if we each had the courage to trust God so completely. Now let's uh, real quickly go back to David and see how this worked for him. First of all, let me make a, a point about our story in 1 Samuel 19 that this psalm was written in response to. Again, David's surrounded. He pours his heart out to God. He tells God exactly what he's feeling. And he's renewed in his confidence in God's control, but especially in his confidence in God's love for him. And then he heads out the window and runs for his life. See, David took off and got away through the darkness. Now, where's the faith in that? Now, we mistakenly believe that faith is trust God and do nothing. It isn't. It's trust God and act wisely. 
act lovingly, even act aggressively at times. You see, David heading out the window wasn't a, a, a breach of faith. Paul did the same thing. When he was in Damascus and they were going to kill him there, in the middle of the night he headed over the wall in a basket and took off through the darkness. Now that wasn't lack of trust on Paul's part any more than it was on David's part. They trusted God. But in trusting God, they took the opportunity that he gave them to get out of danger. There's one more incident in in David's life that I want to to tell you about because I think it really helped us understand how this works practically in our lives. A couple of uh, chapters later in 1 Samuel 24, uh, Saul is pursuing David with this army, trying to kill him. Without knowing it, he comes to this cave that David is hiding out in. David and a couple of his men are hiding in this cave. Well, nature calls, and so Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. And in the darkness, he takes off his robe. And David's men are saying, man, now's your chance. Kill him. David sneaks up in the darkness, just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Let me read to you what happens next. Listen to this. David was conscience-stricken. For having cut off a corner of his robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? To this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of any wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but still you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David is conscience stricken for showing disrespect to Saul. Now, most of us would say, Saul's trying to kill him. Well, what's a little disrespect compared to that? You see, David is dealing with himself. He's dealing with his own behavior, and a little wrong is wrong. And so he apologizes. And did you hear the deference, uh, the respect, the courtesy with which he treats Saul? Even though Saul's trying to kill him. David won't even allow men to speak against Saul. He does say, the Lord will judge between you and me. He will avenge. You see, David has poured his heart out in private to God. Been honest with God about the intensity of his anger and his hurt and his frustration. And he has trusted God to take care of it. And that's what freed him up to treat Saul with respect, dignity, deference, to love Saul, to call him my father, to love him that much. That is what 
the New Testament is teaching us to do. To not stop wanting to see things right, but put coming to God when people hurt us or say things against us. Pouring our hurt, our anger, our frustration out to Him. And realizing that He is paying attention and He's big enough to handle it and He loves us deeply. Because we know that, trusting Him to take care of it. Receiving from Him the freedom that we then have to go and treat the people who hurt us with respect and dignity and kindness. To love them, to speak and act toward them appropriately. Psalm 59, is David processing this with God? Is David talking this through with God? This isn't hypocrisy, saying one thing to God and one thing to Saul. This is the only way we can do what is right. This is the only way we can find the freedom to love those who hurt us. Now, uh, let me give a couple of quick applications where this kind of thing comes up in our lives. Show how maybe it might work out. Maybe your spouse is abusive. That is wrong. It hurts. It is unjust. But what God calls you to do is to come to Him. To pour out your hurt to Him, your anger to Him, without reservation. Realizing He's not shocked or disappointed by your feelings or your anger, by your attitude, any more than He was with David. See, He's made you to be offended, to be angered by injustice. Pour your heart out to Him honestly. And then remember His love for you, that He respects you, He values you. He understands you. And from that confidence, leave payback in His hands. Don't try to hurt this person that has hurt you. Instead, treat them with respect and dignity. Treat them with deference as your marriage partner. To the degree that you don't, to the degree that you act wrongly, apologize. Don't assume responsibility for everything. Don't accept that kind of garbage. David would not accept the fact, uh, would not accept blame for Paul's anger at him. It was inappropriate. But David would confess and apologize for the things that he did wrong. Then, you may need to head out the window. It is not loving to let chronic abuse continue. You may need to walk out of the room or walk out of the house. Go to a friend who who can give you Christian counsel and, and, and help. In fact, if you are in a chronic abusive situation... I urge you to get a third party involved. Don't keep it a secret. Or maybe another illustration or application might be at work. Somebody is mistreating you. They don't like you. Maybe just because you're a Christian. And they're mistreating you. What do you do with that? Well, you come to God. You pour your frustration, your hurt out to Him. You remember that you are an important person to Him. And He values you and He loves you. And then you trust Him to set it right. You really turn it over to Him, knowing He will do something about it. And that frees you up to walk back into that office and love that person. To speak to them with respect and and, and deference. And to seek to help them be successful at their job. But then, again, you may have the opportunity to go and talk to your supervisor. 
and to explore, to seek ways to put a stop to that unhealthy behavior. You may head out a window. One more quick application. Uh, There are so many that we could make. You know, we as as believers are called to, um, to love our society to, to care what happens in our society because we love the individuals in it. We're, we're each called to pray for our government and for our society. And, and many of us are called to do more, to be active in other ways, whether it's letter writing or, or, or running for an office or, or some march or whatever God specifically may call you to do. I can guarantee you, however, that as you get involved in the life of the community, speaking out for what's true and what's healthy, some will hate you for it. Well, what do you do with that? You don't strike back. You don't lash back at them. You come to God and you pour your frustration and anger out to Him. And you trust that He is going to take care of it. He's big enough to handle it. He laughs at the idea that evil will win out. It will not. He guarantees that truth will will eventually win out. And so with that confidence, you come back and treat those people, even those who would like to see Christianity extinguished, you treat them with respect and dignity and deference. And to the degree you treat them unlovingly, you apologize. You don't say, well, they did it first. Look what they're doing. No, you deal with yourself. We must stand righteous before God. And then we trust Him that He can handle it. And we have the freedom than to act and conduct ourselves with quiet strength, dignity. You see, this is the teaching of of this psalm, the teaching of God's Word. This is how we deal with all that comes at us in this life, all of the hurt, all of the injustice. This is how we face everything that we have to face, even if it's a dungeon or a cross. We handle it just like David did, by pouring our hearts out to God, trusting Him enough to be honest with Him, trusting Him enough to really turn it over to Him, and then enjoying the freedom He gives us to love, even as He loves. Well, let's pray. Lord, You are our strength. You are our fortress, our safe place. You are our loving God. And so we just uh, turn to You. Lord, help us to trust you enough to be honest, to to not pretend we don't feel what we feel, to trust you enough to be able to handle what we feel, and to trust you enough to do something about it. We know that ultimately when you return, people will see you. They'll know how much you love them and how they rejected your love. And we look forward to them seeing that we have loved them, to sharing in your glory. Lord, uh, Thank you that you've given us this freedom to come to you and that in doing that you give us the joy and the the freedom to love. I just ask that you help us to respond to you in this way. Amen.